Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and video show which brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you're new to the channel, please subscribe so you won't miss a new episode. Hey, I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Tom Wheeler. Tom, welcome to the program. Hey, Fritz, good to see you. How are you? Hey, Tom, I'm going to introduce you to our audience, to our listeners. You are the executive director of Tree Resistance, founder of SINCHI, a nonprofit that upholds the UN's Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And before that, you were a founder of a number of other uh, initiatives uh, before you moved into, let's say, the, uh, this space, uh, sales in uh, M&A, uh, Chamber of Commerce. And you also volunteer at an orphanage in Cusco in the heart of the Andes. So quite a, a variety. You are from the UK. So my very first question is, and that before I move into what Sinchi is all about, how did you discover you want to focus on supporting the indigenous people in this world? What's driving you there? How did that result? Um, well, in truth, a lot of personal experiences, I think. Um, you you obviously did your research because you, you found out I did this uh, <laughs> volunteer work in Peru this was kind of a year out um, and it was the year I set up my legal network okay. um, I don't think you really mentioned but it's actually turned out to become the largest in the world in the last 15 years um, but just before it got set up I went to spend a year in Peru and I guess it kind of woke me um, in some kind of ways um, being brought up in England in a relatively traditional kind yeah. of English household um, and, you know, some of what they say about the English and about not showing our emotions is probably true. Um, and going to South America where everything was so alive and everyone was so friendly and um, the emotion and the feeling involved in everything. Um, and this in this time, um, if you know anything about Peru, um, Cusco is actually in the middle of the Andes where the indigenous people are Quechuan. Um, and I ended up spending a lot of time with different Quechuan people, Quechuan communities, and then making friends and traveling into the jungle um, and meeting various communities. And I mean, it had such a profound effect on my life. I mean, first on a very much an individual level, mm -hmm. uh, and it really helped me unlearn, I think, a lot of what Western society had taught me um, about connection, about community, about relationship to nature. So um, I was first incredibly grateful, full of gratitude for these experiences. Um, I mean, it transformed my life in so many ways we we couldn't get through if we were here for hours. Um, and um, I always said when my business efforts were successful enough, then um, I would try and give back and um, in, in a sense of gratitude, I suppose. OK, well, it, it does sound like you were able from a position of luxury to gain that experience because you spent a year in uh, Peru and Costco. Is that or is that? A wrong assumption um well I, I wouldn't say luxury um yeah. but, uh, i mean i was volunteering in an orphanage um you know cold water but i'd been successful the years yeah. before yeah. in sales yeah, so right. you know I, i'm in a more privileged position than many people that i was able to make that decision um and take that year out um but i mean this was when i was probably 24 25 years old Okay, so that's actually, uh, uh, are you saying that's a period in your life where you have to do that? Because uh, otherwise you're going to be barked down to having a job, family, kids, mortgage, whatever? 
I don't know. You know, I often joke that I had a very early midlife crisis, <laughs> a very early one. I think people call it a quarter life crisis now. I think it exists. But, you know, I went straight into kind of the corporate world and I spent five years from sort of 17 to 22, where by the age of 22, I was a director of a very well-known corporate publication. Um, you know, I was a very successful salesperson, but I was deeply miserable, you know, and I felt it was such a hole. I had a lack of purpose. I had the, all of the money and success had no meaning or reason to it. Um, so it was almost a form of escapism for my own sanity. And as I said, thanks to those experiences, I some without it sounding too cliched, I kind of found myself and um, found a reason for being. And um, that's driven me ever since. It's actually interesting to see that uh, when I went to university and more or less the same way you experienced after you went to school, uh, you, you finish your education, you immediately go off to work. And it's only then it, uh, at a certain point you realize, hey, um, maybe I'm not doing what I want to do, what I should be doing. It's actually funny to see that the current generation uh, is much more aware uh, you see such more, much more people taking gap years, taking uh, time off before they move on to the next phase. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see that we are understanding we need to do that uh, as people to get to, understand, to try to figure out where we are. Yeah, you know, I think I said it earlier. Um, I don't know if, if it really came across, but you have to learn a lot of things, yeah. I think. Yes, yeah. Because we're told as we grow up that certain things are what happiness, these are the things you're supposed to do. Um, and who says that's the right path, right? Um, like we all need money. That's the reality of the world we live in, to be comfortable, to have our needs met, to um, feel, yeah, to just be able to do the things we love. But um, we have to find things which give us purpose. And that's not generally related to money. Um, there has to be a purpose in what you do. And without it, I think... You know, that leads also to a lot of the mental health problems we see in the world and some of the issues we see. Yeah. OK. Now, the, the fact that you realize uh, I want to do something else, which led to setting up uh, Simshi uh, helping indigenous people. To what extent is that a coincidence by just being in that location? Uh, otherwise, if you had been in a different part of the world, would have resulted into supporting something different? Or do you feel... Hey, it it would always would have led to uh, helping supporting local uh, indigenous people. No, I think well, I said it had a very profound effect on me, and these it depends on how much detail we want to go into. But um, there's a lot of very fascinating things we can talk about with indigenous culture, indigenous wisdom, um, heritage, uh, and it just opened my eyes to a completely different perspective. I mean when we talk about the narrative which we see within the West, um, you know, it's very one-dimensional in some senses and there's completely different worldviews. Um, and this was something which was opened up to me at that point. Um, you know, that's where my journey started, but it led me to actually walking across Greenland solo in the South, uh, where I actually spent time with Inuk families and learned about their communities and their culture. I spent lots of time in the outback of Australia, um, in Northeast Arnhem Land with the Yongu people, um, as well as some of the most remote islands like Tiwi Islands and going through the central desert. So, um, I mean, it built, I always had a thirst for travel and meeting different cultures, but it, it sent me on a kind of a journey of uh, discovery. And, you know, it, every indigenous culture is very different. I think it's very important to say this. It's not like one collective. We can't talk about it generally, um, but there are similarities. 
And as I said earlier, I think this relationship to nature. Um, and what I really love is this idea that we have responsibilities, not rights. You know, I think there's very much in this part of the world, it's like, these are our rights. This is my property. Where in many indigenous, or I'd say the majority of indigenous cultures, it's about, this is my responsibility to the land, to nature, to my community. And I just think that's a beautiful perspective and way of thinking. Yeah, I recognize the entitlement when you live in this part of the world where you sometimes you see people around you, look, no, come on, look beyond uh, your current environment. And uh, th that's actually what you've done. Uh, although, uh, in all those, these are quite adventurous, um, uh, you could say, endeavors you've taken, uh, crossing Greenland, um, uh, Arnhem Land, that, um, how do you plan for something like that? Is that something you meticulously plan or is it a spur of the moment thing? I want to do this. How do you organize something like that? Well, each one is slightly different. Um, I mean, my time in Australia, we were very fortunate to have some great partners. A very good friend of mine is um, a very well-known Aboriginal photographer. So I traveled with him, Wayne William, um, who people should check out his work. He's uh, incredible at what he does. Um, other trips have been more ad hoc. Um, Greenland was probably the most stupid one, to be honest. I just turned up with my tent and went off into the ice caps. And I remember uh, the guy who picked me up with the boat from the airport and he said, where's your shotgun? I was like, huh? Yeah. And it turned out that they'd had a record number of polar bear sightings that year in that part. So it wasn't the best start. And there's me with my uh, little tent just disappearing into the ice cap. But um, no, every trip is different. I'm a little bit uh, more sensible these days with uh, a child and a family. But uh, um, yeah, I think, yes, you should plan it well. But there also has to be a lot of respect for where you're going. You know, um, you shouldn't be going as a tourist. Um, there's one thing being curious, but it's about having respect for the customs that this is, in a lot of cases, indigenous land, sacred land. So you have to be very respectful of where you can go, where you can't, how to communicate. Um, it's, it's as important as actually planning the, the more practical things. Okay. Now, so far we've explored um, how you got your interest into indigenous people. Uh, which led to Sinji, but what does Sinji do? How do you well, help? Well, Sinji has done a lot of different things. Um, at its core, you mentioned earlier that it's about upholding the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights, which is a very important legal instrument. But of course, the work we do exists in many forms. Um, this is led from projects in Australia, Indonesia, Botswana, Benin, Mexico, uh, North Norway with the Sami people, North America, South America, really, I think every continent bar Antarctica. Um, and these, these projects have ran from, um, you know, underground initiatives, academic projects, to creating a journalism guild, to documentary projects, uh, to providing grants to indigenous storytellers or communities. Um, so it's, it's, it's existed in many ways. We also run a bi-annual uh, indigenous artist awards to elevate indigenous artists uh, and storytelling. We've hosted events, festivals, film screenings, debates in Europe to raise awareness. But at the moment, um, our core focus is on the Amazon. And it has been for around three years, around about, well, maybe four years now. Around four years ago, I met this uh, indigenous lawyer called Vandria Barari, who is the first indigenous lawyer to come out of Western Para. And she was in The Hague in the Netherlands and uh, speaking at a major conference. And we made an, an immediate connection 
And that led to her introducing me to the Indigenous Council of an area called the Tapios Arapians, which is in Para. It's an area roughly the size of France in total, the Tapios. So a huge area. And over the last four years, we've been working together on a whole variety of projects to do with protecting Indigenous territories, biodiversity, land. Um, and these range from legal instruments to renewable energy to digital equity to even looking at sustainable economic development. Impressive. We'll make certain to uh, put in the link to uh, Simchi when we release the, the video. Now, I also want to now make a link to one of your other endeavors, which, and I love the name, by the way, Tree Resistance. Um, are these related uh, initiatives or are they separate? And what is Tree Resistance about? Maybe let's begin with that. Yeah, well, like everything in life, everything's interconnected, right? So, uh... yes. Yes, no, they are very much related. Um, one of your previous guests, in fact, um, uh, Professor uh, Tim Buchhout van Solinger, uh, who's yes, the world yeah. leading authority on forest crime, um, had been running an organization called Forest Forces for many years, uh, doing incredible work um, and featured in the UN. Really, it's the best practice approach to um, protecting primary rainforest. Um, and we decided to merge last year. So at the end of last year, we brought our organizations together. So Forest Forces and Sinchi. And um, Sinchi carries on its work, but we decided because of our joint focus on the Amazon to launch this new platform, the Tree Resistance, um, which will launch on June the 22nd. And we're very, very excited about. I think it's a completely new way of looking at environmental preservation, um, both on the ground, but also um, publicly or community based here. Um, so yeah, there's lots, lots going on over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and because uh, I, I want to, you could say, share a quote which I found on the website, which I found amazing. Something I did not realize, but there is an estimated 370 million indigenous people in the world living across 90 countries. They make less than five percent of the world's population, but protect 80 percent of the world's biodiversity. I think there you have it in a nutshell. How biodiversity, protecting that, and indigenous people, how they're connected. It makes sense when you think about it, but it's not always that obvious. Yeah, this is part of what we need to, the world to know. It's unbelievable um, that 80% of the world's biodiversity is protected by these communities dotted around the world. So when we're talking about um, the climate crisis, when we're talking about environmental damage, the fact that indigenous people until very recently have not been part of the conversation is quite incredible, really. Um, and to give a figure to back that up, of the many hundreds of billions which have been spent on environmental preservation over the last decade, less than 0.15% has actually directly reached indigenous people. So it now, really makes you question, doesn't it? Are we trying to save the environment or are we trying to save it in an economy? Good point. Now, Suppose you would increase that number. Um, what would they able to do with that? What what why would that make a difference? Well, at the moment, um, many of the communities are really in a state of survival, um, are in a cycle of poverty. Um, just to give some examples, just fuel alone, basic logistics. It's hard for people to comprehend, especially in the Amazon, how big the distances are. And as you go further into the interior, the prices get more and more expenses, expensive. Um, this leads to both labor exploitation and even sexual exploitation. Um, and any spare money which they do have goes on literally just being able to travel. 
Um, so when you have communities in a state of poverty, um, and if they're not, let's say, very connected to culture and farmers or lobbyists come in offering suitcases of money or whatever it may be, um, of course, you're you're not really creating an environment um, where they can effectively defend the territory. So we first have to support on this front. Secondly, and I think I, I don't want to talk bad about any any organization, but I think there's a lot of mistrust um, with how much money goes to big organizations and how much actually reaches those on the ground. Um, so there's a lot of money which is lost in middle management and things like this. And I think we need to really tackle this by actually giving transparency and showing where the funds go and how they're used. Because believe it or not, the solutions can be very cost effective. It's not even millions which is needed. It's just about getting the right funding. They're not asking for huge handouts. This is just basic funding to secure land rights or to patrol territories with very simple technology can make a huge difference. Great. Hey, so... How would you then define uh, success? How do you measure results? How do you measure impact? Well, I think a great example is um, the project which Tim um, has been running over many years. And this is a Forest Guardian program. So to sort of lay this out a little, a Forest Guardian program has a number of stages or let's say strategic pillars. The first is there has to be demarcation, which means you have to map the land you actually have to prove that this land is an indigenous territory or an area which should be protected. So that's a kind of a bureaucratic process you go through. That's great. But of course, that doesn't stop any of the illegal activity people. And we can talk about the extractive industries, but they still go on, continue cutting down the rainforest, the killing the biodiversity, destroying the ecosystem, which affects us all. So what we created was a model of forest guardians who actually use GPS technology to patrol their territory and document and record any illegal activity. Um, and as one of our partners, Kasiki Dada said, we used to use bow and arrows as our weapon, and today we use cameras. And this is vital. So they're trained on de-escalation, it's training on safe confrontation, but they patrol their territory to basically remove anyone who's there illegally. Of course, this can be very dangerous, so it has to be done with the utmost security. And this is why the third pillar is so important, and that is relationship with the justice system. So we have to facilitate relationships with the Indigenous chiefs, directly with the public prosecutor's office, directly with the federal police. And as a result of this model, um, which has been created, um, the Marrow Territory, which is 420 square kilometres, they removed over eight illegal logging concessions a few years ago. And today it's one of the only areas in the Amazon which is pretty much illegal activity free. Um, and this was reported in the last UN report on US, uh, sorry, the UN report on forest and fauna as the best practice approach. And now what we're doing is uh, basically expanding this model. So we're scaling this model. By the end of this year, we'll have nine forest guardian groups protecting over 1,500 square kilometers by 25, this will be over 5,000 square kilometers. And our vision and the model which we're rolling out will take this not just across the Amazon, but across the Congo Basin, across Indonesia, India, Papua New Guinea, and all of the world's remaining tropical forests. And why not beyond that as well? You know, this is just the start. Um, we need a revolution of how we go about preventing uh, deforestation. And I think the secret of this is protection through prevention. Everyone talks after the fact, 
and they tell you what's going wrong, but we actually have to stop the destruction. We can't talk, keep talking about after it's happened. And that's where we come in. And that's what the indigenous people on the front lines um, are willing to do on behalf of us all. That's very impressive. Um, and it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. But at the same time, I also think, yeah, something we must uh, pick up. So fully on board on that. Um, now, I was, I was wondering, uh, in the way you describe it, um, to what extent was this a bumpy road? Have there been uh, mistakes or dead-end streets you pursue, something pursues and realize, oh, this is not the way to do this? Of course. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a no-brainer, but I was just wondering yeah. if you could share a couple of examples so people yeah. will learn, hey, this is what something to avoid. I often say this, uh, you know, in the business world, for all the successes, nine things out of 10 fail. It's the one which goes big, which everyone remembers, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and that's been definitely true of my own uh, career. But going into the NGO space, it's been very much the same. But yeah, so um, a, a good example, I think, from the early days um, is we did a lot of projects where we would go in and look at documentation um, and storytelling and we provide equipment and there'd be a huge amount of excitement within the community. Um, and they would start off incredibly well, um, but we didn't really always think about the long-term planning so well and the conditions and where things would be stored and who would manage these projects moving forward. And you can imagine that the longevity and the long-term success wasn't really achieved. So I, I think you learn very quickly um, that everything needs to be skidded, considered kind of in a multiple time scales. <laughs> yes. Um, I guess very much like business as well, but it's heightened uh, the distances, the difficulty in communication uh, over such large distances and remote areas. Um, so that's certainly been the case. And I think really just timelines as well. The concept of time is very different, I find, <laughs> uh, when you're, uh, let's say, in the Western world or when you're on uh, with generally indigenous communities or more remote places. Um, time exists in a completely different vacuum. <laughs> Um, so uh, deadlines and um, giving specific dates and trying to push too fast too quickly will not work. There's a natural flow of time which goes in the jungle, which you have to respect. You can't force anything. When yeah. things are meant to be, they flow in that way. When they're not, the river will go the other way. Okay, so you will be tested on your patience. If you're a Westerner, go with the flow. That's basically that. That's a good lesson. I think that actually applies in any environment you're in is you have to be aware what are the the natural cycles of an organization or a system, how th how quick or how slow things move. And you have to adapt to that because you can't change that. That's it. <laughs> yeah, no, you have you just have to go with it sometimes and uh, otherwise it will send you mad. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that. Yes. So, uh, Tom, uh, last couple of questions. Um uh, by the way, do you see this as your life mission or is this a project along the road of your own career? Where do you see this ending? Um, yeah, I've never really thought about it in those terms. I do it because I love it. Um, I Obviously, the big mission is about uh, protecting the environment now. You know, it started off more as a, almost a, as a project of gratitude, of supporting um, the communities which had helped me, but it's turned into something very different. 
Um, now, um, I think it's, and I think as we spoke about the 80% biodiversity, it proves that if we're serious about trying to protect the environment, this is where we have to put our energy and our time. Um, and I see um, Treesistance or Sinchi as a platform which is about being an ally to Indigenous people and help raise awareness of this and directing the funds to those who need it. Um, where that leads, I don't know. Obviously, you've heard the plans. We have very big ideas and big concepts. We haven't even touched on the half of it today. Um, but ultimately, I do it because I love it and okay. um, and I will well, continue to do so. <laughs> well, we have some time. Can you share us, uh, with us uh, what are the, the big plans uh, ahead of us so we can um, share this with uh, people out there? Sure. So uh, our official launch is going to be 22nd of June, which is World Rainforest Day. So it will be a physical event in Amsterdam, but also live streamed across the world as an official part of the program. So please tune in. Um, we have a series of five events going over uh, over June. We'll also be talking in Glastonbury, uh, one of the main stages. Nice. Uh, okay. This will be with Kisiki Dada, one of our main partners and the leader of our Forest Guardian program. So that's very exciting to start. I think what's particularly interesting, though, is or what I, I can't wait to do is actually show the launch of our website and our communications. Um, this will be quite unlike anything you've seen from the NGO space. Um, we're working with some of the top agencies in the world, brands, all on a collaborative basis. Um, so the communication style, um, the messaging um, is going to be completely different. So. Yeah, because th that's uh, we're a couple of minutes. I want to explore that a little bit more. Um, um, traditionally, NGOs are quite uh, on its own. It's only NGOs talk with NGOs. Uh, now we do see uh, ESG becoming more important with general organizations. So how do you start to bring your organization into the biggest system? So it's not just an isolated initiative where you continuously have to show and remind people it's there. But how do you bring that into, let's say, the daily routine of people and business in general? Yeah, but I think the idea for us is we're trying to move away from this idea of charity. I think a lot of people have lost trust in charity for various reasons about how much impact it makes um, to anxiety. Also what you mentioned about costs being... Uh, yeah, and um, we believe that it's the power of collaboration which is going to make a difference and for that reason um, we have a very creative strategy of working with brands with media platforms anyone who shares this same passage passion for instigating change to give an example of this you may have heard of cake electric motorbikes um, they're incredible brands they're actually developing the world's first zero emission motorbike at the moment um, and they, one of our brand partners, they've actually donated and they are continuing to donate electric bikes for our forest guardians, which, of course, not only takes away the cost of using traditional fuel and is better for the environment, but even more importantly, it's silent. So for security and being able to patrol effectively, it's an incredibly uh, beneficial new tool. But with their communication, with their global community, it's not just about the bikes, it's about being collaborative partners in this storytelling and educational uh, communication. Um, another example is we're working as partners with the Puberty Media Group, which is the largest media channel in the world for Gen Z and millennials, um, because we believe this is, of course, the future, the younger generations. So it needs a different type of communication. So they have a combined following of over 100 million and they're our founding media partner who will be making a documentary with us later this year to their audience. 
Um, they will also be feeding content and educational content through their global audience on a weekly basis. So um, we're taking a different approach. Um, but what can I say? You're going to see and, and hear a lot more from us in the very near future. Okay, that, that that's Those are great examples of very serious uh, collaboration. So well done there. Hey, uh, last advice, Tom, if I may. Uh, what would your advice be to those young people out there and say, hey, I want to be involved. I want to demonstrate agency. Is there something they can do? You mean with my organization or just generally from their own? Uh, both, maybe. Well, from our perspective or from our organization, we're always looking for people who are passionate and want to support and make a difference. And there's many, many opportunities they can do so. One sort of more general piece of advice, though, and I think it's important to remind um, everybody, because I hear this a lot, is you first do have to concentrate on making sure you are comfortable first. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, I love the fact that there's so much passion and good intentions to make a difference. Um, and I think it's it comes from a Buddhist saying, doesn't it? You first have to change yourself if you're going to change the world or something of those effects. But I think I mean this more in a, even a financial uh, position is you have to at least have your house in order first. Um, because it takes a lot of effort, time and investment, um, and you have to make sure that your own needs are met first um, if you are going to be sustainable or make an impact. Um, and I think, you know, especially young people I speak to, they are so focused on working for a company which is doing good and making that they're, they're having input from 18 years old or 20 years old. You know, that's not always possible, but you can also do things on the side and have a bigger vision later on. So not everyone has the privilege to be able to dedicate all their time to NGO work. So you have to find a balance. Fair point. Hey, Tom, the balance is, for now is, unfortunately, we're uh, end of time. I love talking to you uh, about what you're doing, uh, Tree System, Simchi. I want to wish you uh, lots of success. Uh, have a great launch and we'll be in touch. Thank you. In a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.